It's been a joyous day of worship, and it's been wonderful to share it with you, to be able to come before God together. Appreciate Foster leading us in those songs, and hopefully we think about that song and its sentiment, and we'll get to a part of our lesson that is certainly parallel with the sentiment of that song, that we do have light within us, sunshine within us, but it comes from Jesus who revealed that to us, and that's going to be a a big part of our lesson as well. But it's wonderful to be with you and to worship with you, and we are thankful for our visitors and your presence and want you to feel welcome. And if you have any questions or or comments that you'd like to bring to our attention after services, we'd love for you to do so, and we'd love to be able to study the Bible together and get to an understanding of, of God's Word so that we can have the hope that it affords Appreciate Landon reading the scripture for us um, this morning. And I want to just start there in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 1. These perilous times that will come that Paul talks about in the last days, they're, they're the days that they were living in at that time and that we live in now. It's the, the last dispensation, if you will, when Christ has ascended to the right hand of God and the kingdom has been established and the next time he comes is to end time and to destroy the world and to judge the world and then to bring the faithful to heaven and to send the unfaithful away for eternity in punishment. And so we live in the last period of time before the end of time. And so these things that he describes are not characteristic of some future that will be worse than anything we know now, but it is descriptive of now. And I think that we are familiar with that as we just go through that list. Men will be lovers of themselves. That sounds familiar in our society, right? Lovers of money and boasters and proud, blasphemers, so on and so forth. People love pleasure rather than love God. That describes the age that we live in. And it's really not anything new. It's what Paul and Timothy and the Christians in the first century dealt with back then. But I think that there are some things that are especially uh, real in our society that especially our youth are faced with, but I think we're all bombarded with on a daily basis that we would do well to think about and be warned about and consider some concepts that the Bible speaks about and that the world kind of hijacks and speaks about in a very unhealthy and corrupt way. And that is the concept of self-love. You know, if you think about loving yourself, depending on your worldview, you may be thinking about that in a very different way than others. I think perhaps the modern thinker will view the love of self as a very healthy, wonderful thing that we pursue, that we should pursue. It's the highest thing you could pursue. One Amanda Knox in a TED Talk speaking to some youth said that loving yourself is the foundation for everything. And I think that we would balk at that idea. Maybe the the Christian, maybe the spiritual minded person would initially be inclined to think of self-love as a purely negative pursuit. Just there's nothing right about that. And I think that's probably because we've been conditioned to think of self-love in our society in a very narcissistic way, in a very self-involved way, in a way that is very exclusive of other people's needs and feelings, a a way that is very self-centered. But I want to tell you, the Bible speaks about 
the command to love ourselves. In fact, when Jesus is asked what is the greatest command, and he says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, he then says there's a second one that's like it. And he quotes Leviticus 19, and in verse 18, he says, you shall love your neighbor. But I know you know the verse. It doesn't stop there. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so loving neighbor is in large part predicated on the reality that I love myself, but not in the way the world would think of it. And I think that's caused some confusion. You know, I said especially our youth, because especially in the day of social media, there are so many who boast of wisdom. So many teenagers that share things and look at things from people of the world who claim that they have something substantive to say, and really they don't know a thing about what they're saying. And there are young Christians who are being led down a path of self-destruction when they think they're being led down a path of self-fulfillment and of joy and of sufficiency and of contentment and of security and confidence. And it's working the exact opposite. We need to be aware of that. I think it's important that we have a proper view of self-love. And I think we can see that the Bible does say we ought to love ourselves. But it also says that there's a time that where men will be lovers of themselves in the purely negative sense. So what's the difference? Well, consider that the worldly self-love is a product of popular psychology. And that's what I was describing before. In fact, you might find in a dictionary, I looked at the New Oxford American Dictionary, a, a definition of self-love. This is what it says there. Regard for one's own well-being and happiness. And, and that's, a, that's a good thing. I don't think there's something wrong about that. We ought to have a regard for our own well-being and happiness. And in fact, we follow the Lord, and that's one of the reasons why. I have a regard for my eternal destination. I, I have a regard for how I live life, whether it's down in the dumps all the time where I can rejoice in the Lord always. Here's what's interesting. You notice in the quotation there, the parentheses. Chiefly, it is considered as a desirable rather than narcissistic characteristic. And that right there is a red flag. The reason they had to put that in parentheses is because of the nature of the self-love that is being defined there. This idea of a regard for one's well-being and happiness is not a good thing. And we're going to elaborate on it in a minute. It's not the self-love of Scripture. We'll look at that as well. And so in an effort to kind of be able to give a concrete look and statement at what is meant by society when they speak about and encourage others to love themselves, I went to Google. And so this is just the top three searches these are not websites I commonly look at at all, but it does give us the sense of what, what we really mean having one's own well-being and happiness at our forefront of our mind, having a regard for that, and really what loving ourselves means according to the world. In an article titled, What It Really Means to Love Yourself on PsychologyToday.com, Man, John Amadeo said, self-love means finding peace within ourselves and resting comfortably within the depths of our being. Listen, especially you younger people, these things sound good. 
But we've got to really think about what we're consuming. We've got to really think about what's behind this. It sounds good that you're, you're comfortable with yourself and the depths of your being. But he goes on to say, this is simply a way of being non-judgmentally kind, present, and mindful toward whatever we happen to be experiencing. Whatever. It's all-encompassing. We need to have empathy and unconditional positive regard for whatever we are experiencing inside. He goes on later in the article to really get to the root of what he means. He went on to say that this gentle way of being with ourselves is an antidote to shame. Rather than battling ourselves or trying to fix or change ourselves, we find more inner peace by simply being with our experience as it unfolds. So essentially loving yourself means you go whichever way you want. And if someone happens to tell you that's a bad idea or that's sinful, self-love means you tune all that out. You erase the shame and you accept who you are. That is who you've decided to be. That is exactly the society we live in with homosexuality and transgenderism and a host of other problems running rampant in our society. It is a product of this pop psychology in part of self-love. There's another article titled What Self-Love Truly Means and Ways to Cultivate It. This will blow your mind. In this article, Aliyah Cooks-Campbell says, Contrary to what you might have heard growing up, fishing for compliments isn't a bad thing. Notice this. One wonderful habit I got from a course was to respond to a compliment with thank you, it's true. I would challenge someone to put that into practice and see how many friends they end up with. Can you imagine someone comes up to you and says, wow, you're looking really good today. Thank you, it's true. Jeremiah, that was a good sermon. It was really thought-provoking. Thank you, it's true. I think we can see the folly in this. They go on to say the way you speak to yourself significantly influences your self-perception and overall well-being. Incorporating positive self-talk and affirmations into your daily routine is a powerful strategy for enhancing self-love. This may not connect with you, but but a parallel to that, an illustration of that, something that came to my mind when I read that. Oh, and I didn't put that on the board, by the way, was when we're studying about evidences and, and we see... Uh, scientists say this fossil, this dinosaur fossil, it is a million years old. We say, how do you know that's a million years old? And they say, because the rock that we found it in is a million years old. And you say, how do you know the rock is a million years old? Well, because the fossil we found in the rock is a million years old. And so it's kind of a, a, a judgment based on not some objective fact, but some circular reasoning. And what self love, according to the world, encourages you is to convince yourself by telling yourself, convince yourself that you're good, that you're right, that you're wonderful by simply telling yourself that until you believe it. And so if you've got a problem, you ignore that, tell yourself you're good until you believe it and then you'll be good. But that is completely without substance. It says replace the negative statements with positive affirmations that emphasize your strength and capabilities and inherent worth. And additionally, surround yourself with positive influences, whether through supportive friends or motivational literature or affirming podcasts. That's a big problem today. It says establishing and maintaining healthy boundaries is a crucial aspect of self-love. Surround yourself with individuals who respect and support your, your boundaries. In other words, 
It can't be brethren who are trying to restore your soul. And I know they're not Christians. That's not what they're thinking about. That's what we are, isn't it? It's, it's insulating yourself from anyone telling you you ought to be better, you ought to change, you ought to repent. In an article on berkeleywellbeing.com titled Loving Yourself, Why and How to Do It, a PhD with the last name Davis, I won't try to say that first name, said, when we love ourselves, we have an appreciation for our own worth or value. We don't need affirmation from others. We don't need them to tell us that we are enough, smart enough, attractive enough. We simply know. Self-kindness, she says, involves being patient with the aspects of your personality that you don't like, being caring toward yourself when you're going through a hard time, and notice this, being tolerant of your flaws. And she'd go on to say in that argument, article that the way you love yourself is by forgiving yourself. Now here's a problem with that biblically. Forgiveness is something that someone else gives you. It's not something you give yourself. If I've sinned, I can't forgive myself. God has to forgive me. If I sin against my brother, I can't forgive myself. They have to forgive me. Forgiveness is given and received. It's not just wrought within myself, but what this person means by forgiving yourself is that even though you have a fault, you need to just tolerate it, not fix it. Don't lose sleep over that. This author would go on to give a couple of quotes, two of which I thought were pretty interesting, from some unknown and some known authors. One of them was owning our story and loving ourselves through that process is the bravest thing that we'll ever do. That's why we live in such a society that is devoid of courage and virtue because this is the bravest thing they'll know how to do. And listen to the gall in this statement. If you're searching for that one person that will change your life, take a look in the mirror. And brethren, your children are being taught these things as good, as ways to find success in life and to look at love in, in this way. And it is not biblical in the least. In fact, if we think about it in contrast to the Bible, the world's view of self-love is very obviously highly subjective. You might say, well, duh, it's self-love. But the Bible talks about self-love. And it's not based on subjective thoughts or feelings. It paradoxically, is from an objective standard that we even learn how to love ourselves. In Jeremiah 10 and verse 23, Jeremiah says, the way of man is not in himself, it is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. And the reason is because there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It's highly subjective. Who cares what anyone else thinks? It only matters what I think. And for that reason, the world's view of self-love is insular. The New Oxford American Dictionary defines that as ignorant of or uninterested in cultures, ideas, or peoples outside of one's own experience. So it, it's, it encourages separation from those who demand or challenge you 
to change. It encourages you to ignore any sense of shame that may be brought on you from yourself or another with the ultimate goal of being unapologetically you. Be you. Love yourself and be you. Don't apologize for who you are. Someone suggests that you learn to love by loving yourself. And and what that will do is it will actually lead you to loving other people. But in reality, it would inhibit you from genuine love, at least for other people. This is the way the psalmist thought in Psalm 139 verse 17. In contrast to this, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God, how great is the sum of them. I care about what you think. I'm not insulating myself from that. Verse 23, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In Galatians 6 and verse 6, not not just with God, but it talks about how we need to care about what our faithful brethren think. and, And we need to care that they may tell us that what we're doing is wrong. In Galatians 6 and verse 6, it says, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. That is, the teacher comes to restore you in a spirit of gentleness so they teach that you're wrong according to the word of God and you need to share in that teaching not reject it not insulate yourself from it but change to fit it world's view of self-love is self-aggrandizing it is a promoter of pride which brethren is the seat of all sin and Proverbs the sixth chapter wisdom tells us that there are Seven things that are an abomination to the Lord. Six things the Lord hates. And the first thing that is mentioned is a proud look. God hates pride. James 4 and verse 6 tells us, God resists the proud, but give grace to the humble. That's what self-love according to the world will actually do to you. Self-love according to the world is actually contrary to true introspection. It encourages to look within, discover yourself, learn about yourself, know yourself, and don't apologize for it, but actually just cling on to that and hold on to that no matter what and no matter who tells you what. That's not what introspection is for. I would, I would argue even in the world, that's not something that will get you very far, practically speaking, in the secular society that we live in. Introspection is meant not to boast about and self-praise about the things that we have right, but to make sure that we get rid of the things that are wrong. Isn't that what Paul told the Corinthians? Examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Here is an objective standard. You look within to see if you match that. And I want to suggest to you that even though they say that it's the bravest thing you'll do and it's the way to true fulfillment and it's the foundation for everything The world's view of self-love is extremely small in aim. Jesus told us that we ought to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. And he says, what will it profit if a man gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I want to tell you this. The world's view of self-love will not gain you the whole world. But even if it did, that's a very small aim. I want to gain Christ. Revelation 2 and verse 10 says, Be faithful till death and I will give you the crown of life. That's what I'm working for. And that requires self-denial. And lastly, the world's view of self-love is just plain blasphemous. I'll read you that quote again. The one who is a proponent of self-love according to the world's view of it says if you're searching for that one person that will change your life, take a look in the mirror. 
This is what Peter reflected before his Savior in John 6 and verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see how unbiblical this pop psychology is? And I want to tell you something. They will try to convince you that there is scientific value and precedent to the things that they're saying. There's been studies that show this, that, and the other. There's been studies that show this, that, and the other. There's a reason why it's called pop psychology. It's popular psychology. It's not scientific psychology. It's not science. It's just the popular worldview at the time. And I imagine that years from now, if the Lord grants us that time, we might probably as a society look back on this generation and think, wow, they had a bolt or a screw loose up there. And so this is an ebb and flow type of thing. It didn't even used to be the mindset most people had, but now it is. It's pop psychology, and it's certainly unbiblical. Worldly self-love is simply condemned. But here's a, an interesting connection I want us to make there in that passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says that men will be lovers of themselves, and then he lists a bunch of different character traits that are just negative and and focuses and pursuits that are just downright terrible. But then he ends it in verse 4 with those who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So you might wonder how Paul can speak in a condemning fashion about people who love themselves, but then say, according to Leviticus 19.18, that we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves, implying that we are to love ourselves. The love of self that he's condemning there is a bookend with what is synonymous lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Loving yourself is about giving yourself the highest sense of pleasure in the flesh, even to the neglect and detriment of the God who created you. That's what self-love is according to the world. Put you before God. We may not have graven images in this country. There may not be idols on every corner, but they're walking all around us because self is the idol of the day. And God condemns it. But He doesn't condemn self-love. He condemns the worldly self-love. He actually requires us to love ourselves in those passages that we just mentioned. But notice even in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, when he's talking about Christ's love for the church and he, he parallels that with a husband and, and a wife relationship and, and leadership and headship and submission and love and respect and all that's involved in that relationship, he explains husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies for he who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. If you're to be a godly, providing, caring husband, you have to love yourself the way the Bible requires it to love your wife. And a husband that treats his wife poorly probably does not love himself. He may love himself like the world says, but not like God wants and requires, not in the way that would be good for him. You know, the suggested aim of the world's view of self-love is is confidence. You want confidence? Love yourself. 
security, not insecurity, courage and contentment and peace and happiness. But the irony is all those things that the world's view of self-love looks toward and tries to accomplish fails miserably and creates the reverse problems. But God's revelation of self-love is the only way to these things. You want confidence? You want secu- Do you feel insecure and you don't want to feel that way anymore? You want security? Do you want courage? And Do you want to be content? Do you want some peace in your life? You want to be comforted? You want to be happy? Love yourself the way God tells you to love yourself. What is that? I'll offer you three points. I know there are nuances to this and there are other ways that we could probably take it, but I think these three are pretty fundamental. Let me suggest to you that true self-love, that is self-love rooted in the Bible and principles revealed by God, is rooted in faith that accepts that one is made in God's image. If you know that your existence is owed to the fact that God decided to and had the power to make you be, to create you, to bring you into existence, and that you are a product of His in the most striking fashion there is. That's where self-love starts. In Genesis 1 and verse 26, after the five days of creation and then animal life on day six, He reaches the pinnacle of creation. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Verse 27, he created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him male and female. He created him. We're image bearers of God. You can't love yourself properly without understanding and accepting by faith that point. You are an image bearer of God's. And you kind of see in that the folly of idolatry where you've got these people created in the image of the true God. And what they do is they they carve a literal image of some figment of their imagination, a false God. And they think there's value to that. The value is found and not in looking in the physical mirror because it's not our physical man that is God's image. But in dwelling on the fact with the aid of the Bible's revelation that my soul, my spirit is in God's image. He is spirit. And I am a spirit. And I need to live that spiritual life according to his revelation. If I get that point, I am on the start to loving myself and finding all of those things I aim for. The the, the solution to all my problems. It's interesting that the the world will say love yourself, but there's no legitimate basis for self-love without the acknowledgement that our existence is owed to God. You think about that for a minute. There's no legitimate basis to love yourself. You say, love yourself. You you have worth within yourself. And and that's what self-love really is all about. It's a product of observing intrinsic self-worth. But there is no intrinsic self-worth unless we're coming from someone who is eternal. And this is all about something bigger than myself. Self-love does not result from realizing independence, insulating yourself from the world, but from realizing one's connection to one's creator who decided he was worth being created. To fear him and to keep his commandments. I think this is 
Kind of what the psalmist reflected on in Psalm 139, 14. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows well. Or David in Psalm 8, who says, when I consider the, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? You have made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor, made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, so on and so forth. Why, why do I have that special and significant place in creation? Why are you mindful of me? Because God made man in his image. And this is what reflection on creation will bring to the one who sees it objectively as it is and, and its corresponding depth that is found within the explanation of God's word. This is what Paul told the idolaters in Acts 17, that God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, has had determined his, their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. I want to tell you something. Despair comes when our search ends at the tip of our nose. I'm looking for fulfillment. I'm looking for satisfaction. I'm looking for meaning. And if all I do is I look at myself in the mirror, I will drown in a sea of self-loathing and despair because it's God that I find my worth with. I've got to seek Him. The fact that I exist means I need to seek Him. Isn't this what Ecclesiastes is all about? It's really about Solomon trying to find purpose and fulfillment of life and the way the world describes self-love. You want something? Get it. You feel a way? Don't apologize for it, but cultivate it and pursue it. You have an interest, you go after it. And this was his conclusion. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He'd conclude with these descriptive words of the human body and the human end. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loose or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. All this self-care and self-love and self-involvement and self-centeredness will end and that person will have nothing. Nothing. And so he concludes, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all. Here's a question to consider. How can I truly love myself and find all the benefits that come with loving myself, if I continue to deny who I am in the first place, that I am made in the image of God for His service and for His glory. It's interesting that all the mass shootings and the suicides and the depression that we witness and deal with as a society, the suggested solution to this problem is people just need to love themselves more. I want to tell you that's the catalyst that has awakened this beast. The more and more people turn within to find fulfillment and purpose and meaning, the more and more will have depression and anxiety and self-loathing and a lack of purpose 
the more and more people look in the mirror and praise the one they see, the more and more lives will be taken without a thought. If you struggle with depression, you struggle with anxiety, you just struggle with all those kinds of mental things that that poke and prod at your, your very being, it's not psychology and pop psychology and the mirror that's going to help you. It's God. Find your relationship with him by his standard. That's true self-love. And jumping right off of that, I think the Bible speaks of the true self-love as not being reached through a knowledge of oneself, but through the knowledge of Christ. Again, the, the way of man is not in himself. That way leads to death. Here, turn to Jeremiah chapter 6. Here's a description of God reaching out to the children of Israel, the tribe of Judah, that southern nation who would go into Babylonian captivity. He's trying to get them to repent. He knows what's best for them, and they continue to refuse it. And I think as we read this, it sounds a lot like what the world says about self-love. And be impressed by how destructive it is. Jeremiah 6 and verse 14, they have healed the hurt of my people saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Don't listen to people who say something's wrong. Don't listen to yourself when you don't like what you see in the mirror. You need to just speak positively to yourself. Everything's good. Everything's okay. Verse 15, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. And so you don't listen to shame. You, you eradicate shame. You erase shame. You, you ignore shame. You ought not to feel shameful. It says, no, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, verse 16, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your soul. So listen to me and wisdom and, and goodness. This, you're failing in your pursuit. Try this way. And they said, we will not walk in it. I set a watchman over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. We will not listen. I know me. I know my way. But notice the consequence, verse 18. Therefore, hear you nations and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people. The fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words, nor my law, but rejected it. That's what self-love gives you. The fruit of of self-love that the world says to pursue is complete and total misery and destruction and pain and anguish and loneliness and regret and doubt. That's what Judah saw when they went into captivity. All of it could have been avoided if they simply in humility said, God, you know me better than I know myself and I'm just going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. You know, Jesus serves as an example of what self-love really looks like. You'll remember in John chapter 9 when they saw that blind man and his disciples said, you know, was it his sin or his parents' sin that made him born blind? And he said, neither, but I must work the works that of him while it is sent, uh, who sent me while it is day. The night is coming where no one can work. He said that, that the glory of God should be revealed in him. That's why he's born with blindness. And I, I have come here to bring that glory to God by healing him. While it's day, I've got to work. I'm the light of the world. 
as long as I'm in the world. But then notice in John chapter 11, he's found out about Lazarus, one whom he loves, being sick, and he delays. And then he says, we got to go to Judea, we got to go to Jerusalem. And his disciples say, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? So this is what Jesus answered. Remembering in chapter 9, when he's talking about day, and it being day that he's talking about, it's time to do God's will. It's time to follow God's plan. It's time to bring God glory. So he says, when they object to him, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. You think about that physically. We don't go out into night without our artificial lights and without the great light that God gave us, the sun, because there's no light within us. We won't be able to see where we go. We may fall in a pit. We may die. There's no light within me. What he's saying, spiritually speaking, is it's God's will that I will raise Lazarus and bring glory to him and glory to myself, convince people that I'm the son of God and that I am the resurrection and the life. And if you follow me, you'll have life in my name. And if I don't go because there's a threat on my life, I will stumble because I will be negligent toward the will of God. That's what he's saying there. He's saying, I've got to walk within the light of God's will. Because as soon as I say that doesn't sound good to me, I'm going to go my own way. I forfeit all light. And I will not know where I'm going and the dangers that lie ahead. If we don't look beyond ourselves to the light of God that he provides, we'll have no sense of direction at all because the light is not in us. It's outside of us. God is light. So notice the encouragement of Jesus in John the 12th chapter. When he ends his public ministry, he says a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And when he uses that phrase throughout the Bible, sons of light, sons of darkness, sons of Satan, it's speaking of, it's an idiom that's looking to what you're characterized by. Children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2. When he says that you may become sons of light, he's saying that you can be characterized by the light and the direction that I provide. The way is not in yourself. The way is found in me. And, and the best thing you can do for yourself to avoid utter destruction because you stumble in the darkness and the light's not in you is to accept the light that is outside of you, let it into you. And there's where we have that song, Foster, let us in. There is sunshine in my soul today. He is the light. Jesus in us is the light. Not us looking to ourselves, not us fulfilling ourselves, not us thinking about what Jeremiah wants and then doing it. But what is the Lord's will? And that's what Paul meant in Galatians 2 and verse 20 when he said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And, and how is that loving myself? You know, someone will say, no, that's going to lead to shame. It's going to lead to regret. It's going to lead to harm because after all, Jesus said you'll be persecuted. So why would you follow him if you love yourself? He says in verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God. You need grace. 
You need a transforming power of Jesus. You need salvation. As we studied this morning, you need forgiveness. This is the way. The only way to truly love yourself is to realize you're made for God and Christ is the way to fulfill that purpose. And that requires self-denial. And here's something that comes from that. True self-love is indeed reflected in our love for others. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I believe last Sunday in our lesson, we looked at very briefly the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. But I want to think about it from a slightly different angle there. In Luke chapter 10, and you remember the parable, I think, where the the lawyer asked Jesus, testing him about what he must do to have eternal life. And he told him, love God and love your neighbor. And, And Jesus said, you've answered rightly, do this and you'll live. And then he tested Jesus saying, who is my neighbor? So he speaks the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's this man that is coming back to Jericho from Jerusalem and he falls among the thieves and he's left for dead and a priest passes him and leaves him. A Levite passes him and leaves him. And presumably he's a Jew, but a Samaritan coming by who has no dealings with Jews whatsoever has compassion on the man, binds his wounds, anoints them with oil and takes him to an inn and leaves extra money for that man's expenses and cares for him immensely. And Jesus says in verse 36, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy to him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. But I want us to notice that that was representative of this command. Love your neighbor as yourself. What drove the Samaritan to do what he did? It says there in verse 33 of the text, a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The seat of compassion is self-love. If I don't care about myself, if I don't love myself, when I see someone else in a pitiable position, I will be incapable of putting myself in that and feeling bad enough to do something to help them. But that's what compassion is. Hebrews 13 in verse 3, it tells us to remember those who are in chains. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. That's what compassion is. If you love yourself and you look at your brother who's been imprisoned and you put yourself in your brother's shoes, what if it were me? And you care about yourself. You care about your well-being. You will be moved with compassion for that brother. And that's what happened with the Samaritan. But I want us to think about, too, the context of this. He had just sent the 70 out, Jesus did, to preach to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he had demonstrated that, you know, some are going to receive your word. Some are not. And so you shake the dust off your feet. You go to the next city. And they returned with joy because even the demons were subject to their name. And Jesus explained, don't be rejoicing in that, but that your names are written in heaven. But then he says this in verse 21. He rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. It's in that same context that a certain lawyer, who does he represent? The wise and the prudent, doesn't he? 
He stood up and he tests Jesus saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then when Jesus said, you have said rightly love your neighbor as yourself, he said, wanting to justify himself, who is my neighbor? The Levite and the priest represent men like this lawyer who are wise and prudent so much so that they can't see the reality of God's will. They are those who look within to satisfy themselves and not to God's word to please God. They don't love their neighbor as themselves. And this man was wanting to justify himself. He hadn't been fulfilling that command and he knows it. They don't love their neighbors as themselves because they don't love themselves enough to even serve God faithfully. That's what true love is. That's what true self-love looks like. And that's fruit of self-love according to the Bible. That I'm not just looking out for me, myself, and I. I'm looking to others and their needs as well. Romans 13 is enlightening to this end where it quotes that same commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, oh, no one anything except to love one another for he who loves has fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so the way we treat others is a reflection of how we treat ourselves and what we think of ourselves when it really boils down to it. Why would I avoid committing adultery in addition to the fact that God said, obviously, that's sinful and you ought not to do it? Well, when I'm thinking about myself and what I would hate to see, what I would hate to feel and and, and what would betray me and my trust and what would make me just feel terrible. I'm not going to do that thing to this person. It's the same thing for theft and for bearing false witness and, and coveting and, and lying and murdering. And so I don't want to do something that I would not want done to me. I love myself. And that's reflected in the way I love my neighbor. But the problem in society is people don't love themselves like the Bible tells them to. God's word is the frame, is the tie that binds this all together in flawless perfection where you know your origin, you know your purpose, you know the way to fulfill that purpose, and you know that purpose is the best thing for you. And when you love yourself that way, you'll have the kind of love that it takes to bring others into that same kind of fulfillment. That's the self-love that we ought to be pursuing. The world's going to tell you the most important thing you can do is love yourself. But brethren, and especially those of ours who are younger, realize that this is a ploy of Satan that will drown us in a sea of godless, self-centered despair. You are not the answer to your problems. You are not the answer to your happiness. The best thing you can do for yourself, yes, the way that you love yourself is through being willing to deny yourself and trust God and follow His ways. Now the world will say that will bring you into despair, 
that will bring you into hardship. That will make things difficult. That will make things unenjoyable. There are blessings for self inherently associated with a life that is lived in service to God. This is what wisdom tells us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. We take care of ourselves and love ourselves by denying ourselves and putting God in Christ and His will first. You can start that journey today loving yourself the way God calls you to and finding great fulfillment by deciding that I'm not going to live for myself any longer, that I'm going to trust Christ enough to put my life into His hands. You do that by being baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. And if we can assist you with that, We'd love for you to come forward. And if you have any other spiritual need, come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.